Welcome to Living the Seven Habits, Applications and Insights with Dr. Stephen R. Covey. In his best-selling book and audio program, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, Stephen Covey presented an approach to life, work, personal relationships, and self-development based on timeless, universal principles of human effectiveness. Here are the seven habits, which you'll also find printed on the cassette box. Habit 1. Effective people are proactive. They take responsibility for their own lives. Habit 2. Effective people begin with the end in mind. They use personal vision, correct principles, and a deep sense of personal meaning to accomplish tasks and relate to others. Habit 3. Effective people put first things first. They exercise discipline, and they plan and execute according to priorities. Habit 4. Effective people think win-win. They have an abundance mentality and a strong spirit of cooperation. Habit 5. Effective people seek first to understand, then to be understood. They are intent on learning the needs, interests, and concerns of others. Habit 6. Effective people synergize. They know that the whole is greater than the sum of its parts, and they value and benefit from differences in others. And Habit 7. Effective people sharpen the saw. They are continuously involved in self-renewal and self-improvement. In this new program, Stephen Covey shares his most recent thoughts and experiences for people who are serious about putting the seven habits to work. He provides greater depth and understanding of each of the habits and illustrates ways to live these habits at higher levels of effectiveness. Here is Stephen Covey. I think one of the best ways to understand the seven habits, in fact, to understand any subject, is to study its opposite. So let me just briefly go through the seven habits of highly ineffective people, and then I'll revisit and restate the seven habits of effective people, and I'll attempt to use the original language, but to teach it in a new way. The first habit of ineffective people is that they don't take responsibility for their own life. They are victimized. They feel like they're under the control of other forces. They're under the control of environmental forces or other people are doing them in. People are unkind to them. Bosses are dead-ending their careers. Uh, teenage children may be killing the spirit in their home life. Their spouse may be very oppressive and very inconsiderate. Their parents may have abused them on a consistent basis, and they grew up with what is called a shame-based identity out of a dysfunctional family. All of these things could have happened to these individuals, and so they have ample justification and reason to essentially say, I am what other people have made of me. I am what my past has made of me. I am what is happening to me all around today, and not to take responsibility. And people who blame are usually into love-hate relationships with their loved ones. They're filled usually with a lot of anger and even resentment toward sometimes their parents or other people in the past who have perhaps treated them unfairly, unjustly. They're often angry about what's happening out there in the environment, what the government is doing, what their boss is doing, what their organization that they are doing their work in is doing to them. In other words, all these things kind of accumulate and give to them a feeling that I am not responsible. Consequently, 
All they're doing is essentially living out the agendas that has been given to them before by other people, and they're filled with this state of what I call disempowering self and empowering the forces outside themselves or even the genetic and psychic forces within themselves. They're empowering them to continue to control their lives. And I do not want to judge the depth and the extent of the injuries that they may have received or are now being oppressed by. All I am saying is between what happens to us and our response to it is our freedom to choose our response. And that is the key element of the first habit. It's being alive. It's the habit of choosing your response, the habit of awareness that I am a separate person from all that has happened to me, including all of my feelings, my moods, my genetic makeup, and so forth. Now, people who are ineffective usually do not practice habit two, or if they do, they do it very superficially. Habit two, begin with the end in mind. Instead, these people begin with no end in mind. They just kind of wander aimlessly. If they set goals, that is because of some temporary environmental pressure upon them to come up with New Year's resolutions or some new goals, but they're not that committed. They have no sense of what their life is about, no sense of personal meaning. There's no sense of their own identity. Consequently, they do not begin with the end in mind. They do not envision the future with the sense that I can influence it, that I am the creative force of my own life. Instead, they think in terms of the reasons why they cannot accomplish things. They hope a lot. They dream a lot. But there's no internal sense of power that I can literally make those things happen if I make my mind up. Habit three, to put first things first, ineffective people put second things first. They don't put first things first. They might even know what the first things are, but because they're so victimized by circumstances and other people and their past, they are precluded from keeping those first things first. And they end up, in a sense, bogged down in the thick of thin things and Goethe's statement, things which matter most must never be at the mercy of things which matter least, applies beautifully to them, and they don't know any way out because they are busy, they are into a state of crisis management, they are inundated with all that is happening to them out there, and the only respite that they seek and feel is some break with it. Now, the net effect of these first three habits is that they create an inward lack of identity, lack of personal security, and a sense that the only worth that lies in them comes from other people's opinions of them. It's what I call a scarcity mentality. They see life through a filter or through a lens that says there's only so much. So if they see someone else getting more than they, even if it's a loved one, they might inwardly feel resentment. Outwardly, they might say, I'm happy for you, but inwardly, they are eating their hearts up, and they know it. And they can even secretly delight in the misfortunes of other people. Their security comes too much from the forces outside themselves and not from their own 
internal sense of worth and integrity. Habit one, in a sense, to be proactive means that we're alive, that we are living our own lives, we're choosing our own response. The second habit, to begin with the end in mind, is in a sense the test of our meaning. What is our life about? What is our identity? What are we about in life? The third habit is the test of our integrity, our discipline and our commitment to live by those things. That's the habit of having our lives integrated. We walk our talk. The main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. That is a real challenge and a true test of our integrity, of our maturity. Now, the ironic thing is, out of all of this interior work comes an internal power and a maturity that releases us from the terrifying sense of having our security come from the outside. Our security, the locus of it, shifts to the inside. Can you imagine the sense of emancipation, of true liberation when a person senses that my security, my sense of worth, my identity lies inside me? It lies in things over which I have influence and control and not in someone's opinion of me, not in the public opinion marketplace, not in how I stack up against other people. Can you see why such an individual would literally experience happiness with the happinesses of other people? That they would actually enjoy other people's successes because in no way does it take from theirs. They don't come out of what Abraham Maslow called a deficiency state of motivation. Instead, they are in a growth state. They are in a becoming state. They're happy for the successes of others and they can genuinely sorrow with their misfortunes. They don't secretly harbor hopes to hear about other people's misfortunes. They rejoice in the good things, and they look for the good things, not for the bad. Now, out of that comes the other habits, four, five, and six. They're the habits of our relationships with other people. So habit four, to think win-win, is just the natural fruit of habits one, two, and three but in itself is the root to even more fruit in our relationships with others. It'll help produce new things, bonding experiences, the power to influence others to do their own interior work. Then we could call the opposite of that to think win-lose or to think lose-win, which is a kind of martyrdom step on me again. Everyone else does. I'm no good. See, those attitudes, those approaches are the habits of ineffective people. Probably the more common one, though, is the win-lose, or at least the win. I don't care about whether you win or lose. All I know is I want to win. If there is any contest of wills involved, and if I have a deeply embedded scarcity mentality where I see life as a big contest, as a zero-sum game, as one large piece of pie, and if you get a hunk of it, that means I have less, then I'll tend to go for win-lose. I want my way. I'll look on my kids as being insubordinate and disloyal when they take me on, when they disagree. I look on subordinates in the same way, and then I'll tend to go for win-lose. And if I have enough clout and I have enough 
of what's called the great jackass theory of human motivation, that is the carrot and the stick, to cause you to jump around like a puppet, then I get my jollies, I get my psychological satisfactions having those kinds of controls on your life. But there's no bonding that takes place. There's nothing that is created that is new that strengthens us both. And then it develops a kind of defensive mentality and an adversarial feeling, even inside marriages, even inside families, and very clearly and obviously inside many, many organizations. And it undermines the emotional bank account, the trust. And when that is shot, then communication is shot. Because communication is primarily a function of trust, not of technique. Now, habit five we call seek first to understand, then to be understood. Ineffective people do the very opposite. They really do. They want to be understood. They're so filled with how right they are or what their desires are that they see the whole life, in a sense, through that autobiographical stance. In other words, it's their story, their value system, their background, their views, their evaluation. That's what guides their decisions. That's what guides their judgments. And for them to really listen empathically, that is within the frame of mind and heart of another person, takes this enormous internal security and this sense of my own worth so that I can afford to leave myself. See, that's why ineffective people cannot afford to leave themselves. They might try to practice this on superficial issues. They might succeed to some degree, but you take the key issues of their life what we might call the jugular issues where they have invested an enormous amount of emotional energy. You take those issues, particularly with the dearest people of their life, and that will be their test. And it will be their undoing as well. And it can lead to more win-lose thinking and feeling no one understands me and then both look for evidence to validate their perception. And if you look for it, you usually can find it one way or another, even if you misinterpret the motives of another, because our tendency is to judge others by their behavior, ourselves by our intentions. So when we see someone's behavior and we suspect what our intention might be on that behavior, we supply it. And then the net effect is it creates a kind of collusion or a negative energy cycle that feeds upon itself and the relationship begins to deteriorate. And then they don't synergize. Habit six is the habit of creating something together that bonds us. Habit six, synergize, means that the whole is greater than the sum of the parts, that literally the strength of our marriage, the strength of our relationship in this team or in this business or in this school is the fact that we are different, that we think differently, that we see it differently. But can you imagine the amount of personal security it would take to truly deepen our hearts, not have prejudice, not prejudge, to discover our wife again today, freshly, newly, as if we had never seen her before, to experience our husband on the basis of the experience of today, to experience the son or child or the boss and not to have to carry the label of yesterday, to not to have to live out of our memory, but to live with imagination, with the potential of what other people have inside them, to live on the basis of what you might call true faith in the potential of other people and to see in that faith hope for the future and to have the spirit of charity that follows 
so that you are not jumping upon them and looking for evidence to, say, undermine them or to validate some earlier prejudice. So in a sense, habit four is the fruit of the first three habits, but it is the root of five and six. That is, it is like the tree that has its roots deep into the soil of mutual benefit, of trust, of abundance, of a desire for really valuing other people as you value yourself. Then the natural route to take, like a road, is habit five. We need to communicate. We need to understand each other, but always to understand the other first. Not to judge, but to understand. It's very interesting that judgment and understanding are almost inimical concepts, literally. You cannot judge when you understand at the same time. They're mutually exclusive emotions, literally. And it's very ironic. Those who do not judge will not be judged. They will not be judged. They'll find that they'll create an aura around them and a culture around them that is non-judgmental. Why? Because they are so accepting. They notice. They observe. They don't judge. And they seek to understand without judgment. They don't agree or disagree. They're not into sympathy. Empathy is not sympathy. They observe. They notice. They understand. But then they also want to be understood. And out of that interaction flow new insights, new awarenesses that neither of them had before. And if they truly understand each other's deeper needs and interests and concerns, usually the creative right brain enables them to come up with solutions that are truly synergistic. So habit six becomes the fruit of four and five. Habit seven is the habit of continuous renewal. It's the habit we call sharpen the saw. Ineffective people really do not pay the price of sharpening the saw. They fall into what's called entropy. They fall back, they get disordered, they lose their interest and their energy. They're psyched when they get into this material for a few days or something of this nature, but then after a while, it's washed away. And then they've learned only new things to condemn themselves by because they do not maintain the habit of renewal, the habit of balance, the habit of sharpening the saw, the habit of continuous improvement, the habit of Kaizen, the Japanese word for continuous improvement. And that one hour a day will affect the quality of every other hour of that day and the depth and restfulness of one's sleep. Imagine if there were only seven hours in a week in sharpening the saw, that if it would be so significant a leverage factor on the other 161 hours of the week, we must say that it cannot be neglected. It's the one habit that essentially nurtures and maintains and enhances the other six. The seven habits are much more than simply a list. Each habit has many layers, and at each layer, the habits interact with each other to create interrelationships, like a natural ecosystem. Everything is interconnected. Taken together and understood at these various levels, the seven habits are the substance of a healthy, proactive life. They create a highly functioning, productive ecosystem. To illustrate this idea of interconnectedness on multiple levels, Stephen offers the image of a spiral staircase. Take habit one to be proactive. 
at floor one on that spiral staircase, if you can see what I mean, at floor one, the beginning floor, just that you're aware I am responsible. I am response-able. The awareness that I can think about my thoughts, therefore I am not my thoughts. I can think about my moods, therefore I am not my moods. I can think about my genetic tendencies, therefore I am not those tendencies. I can choose my response to those tendencies. Then, as the spiral staircase goes up to the second floor, proactivity is an altogether different kind of habit because it has gone through the other six. A certain amount of internal peace has come from one, two, and three. A certain amount of interpersonal success has come from four, five, and six. I have sharpened the saw. I'm into self-renewal. And then I begin to discover a whole new dimension to habit one, to take initiative, to make things happen, to do what's necessary consistent with correct principles which you've established at habit two, to make good things happen in her life. Then gradually that person starts to experience, I'm not just aware. I cannot just choose my own response. I am truly a force of nature. I am the creative force of my own life. I can make things happen. Let's say I don't have a job and I'm looking for some kind of employment. What can I do with my time? I can go to school. Let's say I have no money. I can go to a public library. I can start reading. I can start studying. In fact, I think I'm going to study the business I want a job in. I want to understand their needs, their customers, their suppliers, their interests. And then when I go to them to get a job, I'm going to go with my ducks in line. I'm going to go prepared. I'm not going to be a problem. I am going to be a solution to the problem. That kind of proactivity, that kind of empathy will blow employers away. They're looking for someone who will make things happen, who will reverse some of these downward trends. So in a sense, that becomes the second floor of what it means to be proactive. But now, what's habit two at that floor? See, that changes too. You're living out your mission statement. You're deepening it. You're making it as mature as you can. You're getting a broader understanding. And you're also developing some new goals based upon that mission statement that you developed at floor level, if you see what I mean. Then let's just say maybe you go to the next level. Oh, let's say you're dealing with some very powerful forces that are really crimping your style and that are hurting you, really hurting your feelings and seems to be damaging your self-esteem to some degree. And you start to discover, maybe I'm not as internally motivated and internally secure as I thought I was. What do you do at this level? You may have to do what Viktor Frankl did, this Austrian psychiatrist. Just choose your own attitude toward what is happening to you. That may be a higher value than the second floor. That is what you created, see? In the second floor, you are the creative force. At the third level, you choose your attitude in a set of circumstances you can do nothing about. And you are going to learn from those circumstances, you are going to ask the question, what is life asking of me now? And you listen inwardly to your response to that. And you gradually develop more internal power over your emotional and your attitudinal state. Your moods tend to even out a little more, a little less up and down. You find that your sense of personal power comes from your honor by the way that you make and keep promises to yourself. 
And so that honor gives you more power over your moods. And so you can choose your own response. Eventually, it may lead you to the fourth floor where you can forgive people, where you can forgive your parents, where you're no longer feeding on the resentment of the past. It isn't the snake that bites you that does the serious damage. It's chasing that sucker that drives the poison to the heart. It isn't what happens to us that does the serious damage. It's our chosen response to what's happened to us. As Eleanor Roosevelt put it, no one can make me feel inferior without my consent. As Gandhi said, no one can take away your self-respect if you do not give it to them. It isn't the poisonous snake that bites you that does the serious damage. It's chasing that snake that drives the poison to the heart. It's going after what's happened to you. It's reliving the injury again and again and again. So maybe proactivity at the fourth floor is the ability to truly forgive and forget. I see this as a powerful metaphor, an ecosystem, a body and uh, nature. All of life is an ecosystem. The power of these seven habits lie in the relationship among the habits. And it isn't just the private victory preceding the public victory. That's foundational. But it's also how habits one, two, and three are related to each other, how four, five, and six are related to each other. And hopefully as we carry on this discussion, we'll begin to see elaboration of what I am saying now. You'll see how each one of them at the second floor, the third floor, and the fourth floor will be altogether different, just as habit one on proactivity. The key is that some things must precede other things. That is a hard learning for people that want quick fix, for people that want simplistic success formulas. But it is probably the most liberating learning they can come to because they will stop looking for that which ain't so. They'll stop trying to be good in tennis when they have not developed any aerobic capacity. They'll just realize some things are related to other things. The power of the essence of the seven habits is that we're dealing with an ecosystem that is so basic, so foundational, so generic in all of nature that once people begin to get the spirit of this, it will lead them to where their second habit at the third level will be totally different than what mine may be. What is habit two? At your value system. So no matter what you come up with, stick it in habit two. What's habit three? You live by it. So no matter what you come up with in habit two, you try to practice it in habit three. Well, what's habit one? The awareness that you can come up with something. In other words, you are responsible. You are the programmer. That's habit one. The awareness, I'm in charge. I am not a victim. I am not a product of my past. I am not a product of my genetic makeup. Do those things influence me? Powerfully. But the space between stimulus and response is where we go to work. And as that work is done, it gets larger and larger and larger. That's what's exciting. So no matter what a person may come up with, I think you can put it all under habit too. Well, then why do we select four, five, and six? Well, try to think of the most generic things with regard to our relationships with people. Can you get any more basic than just saying other people have worth too? Well, that's all habit four is. 
think win-win. You matter too. Now look at habit five. What is more basic? That if you do value people, don't you want to understand them? In the emotional bank account, that is always the first deposit because you don't know what kindness means to them except understanding them from within their frame of reference. Habit five, do you understand? Now you have the basis on which to make deposits or withdrawals. Without that understanding, you have no basis at all. What's habit six? What's the fruit of the interaction of people? You're building a relationship. What kind of relationship do you want? Do you want one that is better than what you bring individually and what the other bring? Yeah, you'd like something that is larger than it. You want to have a bonding experience, something that is created by the two of you that was not there before. To have a good date with your child is a good experience. But to create something new, to create a party with that child that was a rich, say, intergenerational family party, or to build something with that child where the two of you work together and you learn to cooperate together and you created something and it's a symbol of that creation, that's bonding. That's more powerful. Those are synergistic fruits. Can you begin to see now how synergy represents something that comes out of the quality of our relationship? That's why these are so foundational. Habit seven is also generic and foundational because it means you have to take care of yourself. You have to feed your body or you die. If you don't move your body and exercise it, your muscle will die, they'll atrophy. The key to energy is oxygen. If you don't constantly do this aerobic exercise physically, your ability even in your brain to think will be retarded because you won't get enough oxygen to your brain. Those who have tremendous aerobic capacity through their lungs and their circulatory system, they have so much more energy. They can get involved in so much more activity. They can carry more responsibility. Their shoulders are made equal to the burdens that were placed upon them. They rise to the occasion. Some people have enormous physical capacity and perhaps they haven't earned it. It's come more genetically. Well, what if they would also continue to exercise? How much larger that capacity would be? Well, what about our mental capacity? What about our capacity to think, to think abstractly at several levels, to communicate clearly, analytically, creatively, to continue to learn, to read? This mental capacity, can you imagine anything more basic and foundational than being endlessly involved in education? What about the renewal of our own spiritual natures? What are we about, really? What's truly important? The main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. How do I get back to that so that I don't put the main thing the secondary thing? So if people will sharpen the saw physically, mentally, spiritually, and then they nurture the emotional bank account with their loved ones on a consistent basis, can you think of other things more basic, more foundational than those habits? By truly living the seven habits, we can create for ourselves a healthy ecosystem. The seven habits allow our strengths to come from within ourselves. 
But the foundations of the seven habits, the principles upon which they're built, are not internal, but external. They are timeless truths that are self-evident. For example, habit one, be proactive, is based on the principle that we are responsible for our own lives, and we are able to choose our responses to events in our lives. Habit two, begin with the end in mind, is based on the principle that we are creating our own reality. We are the authors of our own stories. Each of the habits grows from natural laws that operate regardless of whether or not we pay attention to them. This is why Stephen Covey refers to them as an ecosystem. They are built on the immutable concepts of trust, integrity, service, and meaning. By living the seven habits, you align yourself with these natural laws. You become principle-centered. One of the fundamental elements of this process is the development of a mission statement, a declaration of who you are and what you are about. What is the source of mission statements? Stephen tells us that they come from our secret lives. We live three lives. We live our public life. We go often into uh, many social activities that are public and so forth. So that's a pretty self-evident life. The second life is our private life. That's away from the public. Now, we may be alone, or we may choose to be with a particular friend or with our loved ones in our family, or simply be totally alone. And that's our private life. That interfaces with the public, but we value it. We value both parts to our lives. The third life is part of the other two. It's the significant part. This is our secret life. That's where our heart is. For instance, I could be in a large public setting and put my consciousness into exploring what my motives are. What am I doing here? How can I make a difference? How can I make a contribution in this setting? I'm in my secret life while I'm in a public setting. Or I could be in the mountains alone or on a beach alone and not go into my secret life at all. It isn't until I go inside and ask my heart, what is its motive structure? What really are my desires? It isn't until you begin to become self-aware and explore the programs that you're living out. You stand apart from them. That is one of the unique human endowments that animals do not possess. They do not have the power to stand apart from their programming and to examine it. That's the secret life. Now just look how that unique endowment becomes so vital to all of the habits. Let's say that I'm wanting to work on habit two, to develop a personal mission statement. Obviously, if a person is seriously trying to undertake that effort, they're going into their secret life because they're asking, what is my life about? They're exploring their own life. They can explore their psychic history, their background, their genetic makeup, the present environment, but they're doing it from a different place from their secret life. That self-awareness then leads to the ability to look at other things, other unique endowments in that secret life. One is our conscience. Our conscience is the internal sense of right and wrong. That is part of our secret life. Now, Freud believed that the conscience is primarily a product of the public life, of society, of the culture. 
Carl Jung split with Freud on that very point. He acknowledged such a thing as a social conscience, but he said much deeper than the social conscience is what he called a collective unconscious, which has to do with that which is most generic, most foundational of all people, to all people, regardless of their culture, their upbringing, their religion, their race, and that in that collective unconscious is a sense of right and wrong that has been given to us. It's like a unique endowment. We can also visit the power of our mind to create or to imagine that which does not exist now. That's another unique human endowment. Animals act on the basis of memory, not imagination. In that imagination lies our faith and hope for the future. Now notice, when you go into your secret life, you are self-aware, you look at your conscience, and perhaps can examine your life against your conscience. You also look at what's possible, what you can imagine, what you can envision, all while you're in your secret life. And you could do this in your public life or in your private life. We all have the power to do that. All right, now let's just say that I want to work on this personal mission statement. In fact, to make it simpler sometimes, in large organizations, I like to ask them, go into your secret life and ask this fundamental question. What would you like your tombstone to say? What would you like the last sentence that describes your life to say? What's the epitaph? I noticed that General Schwarzkopf was asked that question after the Gulf War by a television interviewer, and he paused for a second and said, A good soldier who served his country and loved his family. Now, if you just think about those few words, they comprise many, many guiding principles, guiding criteria for his life. A good soldier who served his country and loved his family. Principle of service, of love, of goodness, the different roles in his life, his country, his family, his personhood. See, it contains so much. Well, let me just ask, what would you like your epitaph to say? Now, pause. Now, if you don't mind, I'm going to observe what might be happening in your mind as you pause. You're looking at yourself. There's the endowment of self-awareness. You're probably using your imagination and thinking about your future. Now you're using the unique endowment of imagination. My guess is you're also finding that the very essence of your nature is that it is moral, that you have a conscience, you have a sense of what is right and what is wrong, even apart from your upbringing. That may be part of it. But you may distinguish between the two. Now listen to it. Now remember, you won't receive any social or public affirmation for this effort. In fact, it may not be a normal part of your private life at all to ever visit your secret life to go into your heart. But here you're making the effort. There's another unique human endowment. It's called willpower, independent will. So you have to explore, am I really willing to go the distance on this epitaph, these values that I'm trying to internalize into my life? Am I really willing to walk this talk? 
Am I really willing to put these first things first, habit three? That's where you go through the internal dialogue between the different parts of your nature. Now notice what's happening. Habits four, five, and six immediately are the habits of how you work in your secret life. You think win-win toward yourself, toward all parts of your nature. If you get too angry at yourself and you deny one part of your nature, you'll come out of the other part. Yes, I'm willing to do that. But then downstream, when the day-to-day -day events crush upon you, you'll find that you won't be able to keep that commitment or to work toward that particular goal or to actualize that particular value. Why? You haven't drawn upon those human endowments enough because you want this mission statement to become the constitution of your life. You don't want it to just be a bunch of platitudes to impress people with. You want it to become part of your very nature so that the criteria that you have put into it are also into your muscular system, into your sinews, into the way that you live your life day by day. It's like the American Constitution. You might say that the preamble and the first ten amendments, the Bill of Rights, together with the Declaration of Independence, represents basically what we could call the mission statement of the United States of America. But do you know what it took to produce that Constitution? A revolutionary war, probably the best blood of that century. It also took people pledging their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor. It also took an extended constitutional convention. In a sense, they were practicing habits one, two, three, four, five, and six regarding the formation of our entire country. They had to get into a self-aware state. They had to look at what had happened in the prior regime and administration why they were going to break out and declare their independence. They had to look at how we're going to fashion this government that will create the framework in which everything else takes place. What are the fundamental rights to be preserved, put into the Bill of Rights? Are we willing to walk this talk? What is being writ large there is writ small inside our own secret life. As we develop our own mission statements and work with the issue of our willpower, to decide, is this, in fact, going to be the constitution of our life? Or are we going to betray it when put under pressure, when push comes to shove? Am I going to go the distance on this? Imagine the internal communication, habit five, intra-personal communication, not inter, not between people, intra, within your own heart, as you weigh out what are the costs. Am I going to live a life of total integrity? If you get your secret criteria out of the public arena, you're being lived. You're living out other people's agendas, their timetables. Where do you get your own sense of integratedness, your own sense of integrity? That comes from habit three. You do not betray habit two. Habit two is where you decide what is truly significant to you. What are the principles upon which you operate? And what is your life about? And then you look at habit three. But can you see now how those four unique human endowments are being exercised in those first three habits? Can you also see how habits four, five, and six focus directly on the development of two and the keeping it at three? What does this synergy mean intrapersonally? As you carry out this intrapersonal communication within yourself and you take time 
and you're patient, you're kind with yourself, you have the spirit of win-win towards yourself, you're not condemning, you're not damning, but you're honest, you carry out this inward conversation in your own secret life, your heart, using those four unique endowments, gradually what happens is you get insight. It'll come eventually. You get an idea that will heal two disparate parts of your nature. You'll get identified with a superordinate goal, say, your family, the development of your children's well-being, and helping them become major contributors in life as well. And that will subordinate all of this psychic energy around the way that perhaps you were raised. It will help overcome the tendencies to become impatient or to be unwise and to overreact because you have this superordinate goal. What's happened? Synergy. Intrapersonal synergy has happened inside yourself. You're beginning to fashion the Constitution. And there may be a little revolutionary war inside and an extended constitutional convention. Don't force the processes. There is no shortcut to this. The strength of these mission statements lie as much in the process that produce these mission statements as in the content of the mission statements themselves. Let me just give some basic characteristics of good mission statements, whether they be personal, family, or organizational. One, they should be timeless. Goals are not timeless, so they should not include goals. Goals will change. Goals will reflect the realities of the present situation. These should reflect the realities of that situation, but should be changeless. What are the principles upon which we operate regardless of what the situation is about. That's what gives permanence. That's what gives a changeless core. That's what enables people to live with change. Why? You have something that does not change. So I would say, first write it as if it will never be changed. Nevertheless, even the Constitution had 26 amendments, really 16, because the first 10 were the Bill of Rights. But in a 200-year period, 16 amendments, as you mature, you'll find that you'll gradually strengthen, deepen, improve your mission statement, but always write it as if it will never change, as if it were timeless, and then set up a provision for some kind of amendment process. Second criteria. It should deal with both ends and means. Ends have to do with what is it we are about. Means have to do with how do we go about it. In other words, what are the principles we operate to achieve those ends? See, ends and means are really inseparable. You can never achieve a worthy end with an unworthy means. Just to illustrate, let's say that I'm a service station man. My family is really suffering economically, and I need to make more money. And I know how to make more money, and by getting commission on the things that I sell, including services and labor and products. So someone comes in, an out-of-towner, I'll never see them again. I can look underneath the hood and say, Oh, sir, have you noticed this uh, frayed wire to your starting motor? In fact, I really wonder about that starting Really? Start what, where's that? Oh, that's the starting motor? So you learn he doesn't know anything. And look at this frayed belt down here. I'm really concerned, but you do what you want. We'll just give you the gas so you could just have a simple transaction. Come in, pay $20, get $20 of gas and go. But here is a duplicitous person. 
he has a worthy objective. He has a worthy end, but he uses unworthy means. And let's say that he's able to talk that person into a big bill. He buys a new starter mortar and a new belt, as well as the gas and the oil. So instead of a $20, it's a $220. Let's say you get a third of that in commission. Look what you can do to your family. Look at the good things you can do with that money. And they're hurting. They need it. But look what happened inside. And what about that other attendant that laughed with you as you ripped off that customer? What does that attendant know you're doing the next day when a strain comes on your relationship? What does that employee know you may be doing when you get into some planning, when times get tough? And what about inside yourself? How do you handle this moral issue when you knew you did something wrong? Do you bury it? Is it possible that it might come forth in uglier ways with your loved ones? That you might overreact? Is it possible that it might affect the relationship of body and mind and spirit and psychosomatic illnesses might develop? Just like the farm, we will always, always reap as we sow. There are no exceptions at all. To emotionally accept that puts you square into your secret life where you have to learn to deal with your conscience, with your willpower. Am I really willing to do this, to walk this talk? And the more people live by their conscience, the more integrity they have, the more they have this abundance mentality. Now notice what happened. We have applied habits four, five, and six at the intrapersonal level to habits two and three. The fruit of that is interpersonal habits four, five, and six. So that you genuinely think win-win. When that guy comes in, you give him a fair exchange for what he asked for. And the person notices you could have ripped them off, but you didn't. You have peace of mind inside yourself. But what about your son and your family? You're suffering there. You've developed creative energy. You expand your capacity. You work more and more in your circle of influence until you develop the skill base and the opportunity base on which you can meet those other needs. People notice that. Your employees notice that. This other attendant notice that. They notice the second mile you go with this customer. They notice that customers come back to you. They notice that you're gradually building a credibility, an ethos program, a foundation of character and of competency. Now you're becoming a light, not a judge. It's hard to be around a person of that kind of integrity and not be powerfully influenced and inspired by them. That person will come up with creative ways if they're proactive enough to meet the other needs. Now, what am I basically saying? Ends and means are inseparable. Ends pre-exist in the means. You'll never, ever achieve a worthy end with an unworthy means. You cannot violate one principle. You'll eventually find the hens will come home to roost. But many mission statements only deal with values. They deal only with these principles, but they have no vision to them. We want to be good, but we want to be good for something. Negative goodness that's untested isn't good. It's when you're out in the battlefield to accomplish worthy objectives, some project that makes a difference, that contributes, that adds to the welfare of society and to your own family welfare and so forth. That is what causes you to see, am I going to live by these principles? It's the inseparable nature of means and ends. Many mission statements are only wish statements, vision statements, dream statements. They don't deal with means. Others only deal with means. They're value statements, value clarification. They don't deal with ends. 
The key to one is always the other. The ends and means being inseparable. Let me give a third criterion. I think you should deal with all four of our needs. The need to live, that has to do with our body and the welfare of our family. The economics, we could call it. And then we have the need to love, to be loved, to belong, to be accepted, to be part of something, to have people care about you and you care about them. The culture need, the social need, you could call that. The third need is the need to keep growing, the need to learn, the need to grow, to develop, to have your talents be identified, to be recognized when they're used, and to be used, to be used in wide and expansive ways. And fourth, the spiritual need for meaning, that your life matters, that you make a difference, that you add value. The need for meaning is an enormous need in all people. People who don't believe it, just try throwing their work out the window, see how they feel about it. People that lose a loved one to, say, a tragic accident or a disease, watch if they don't want to make that life meaningful by going into the cause to research that disease or to avoid that kind of liberal interpretation of the laws causing drinking and driving to take place too often. They want some cause, some meaning to that person's life. There's an enormous need in all of us to live, to love, to learn, to leave a legacy. The four dimensions of our nature, the same four dimensions we talk about in Habit 7 to sharpen the saw. The physical, the mental, the learning, the spiritual, what gives your life meaning, purpose, and the principles, the integrity that come with that. And then the social, contribution, serving, blessing other people, seeing your life as a stewardship, life as a mission, not a career. One other, you should deal with all the roles of your life all the significant roles. You don't want to neglect one of them, nor should a business neglect one of its stakeholders. It should deal with every stakeholder. In my personal life, I have the role of being a husband, a father. I have the role of being a manager. I have the role of being a teacher. I have the role of being a writer. I have the role of being a community worker, a neighbor. All of those roles are important. And to lead a balanced life, I have to think through all those roles and in some way include them in this very brief statement, this mission statement. I suggest those are the fundamental criteria of good mission statements, not only for individuals, but also for families and for organizations. Once you develop a mission statement, how do you enact it? How do you make it real? In the next section of this program, Stephen explores the power of planning and presents the organizing principles that lead to empowerment. He uses the image of the four quadrants as an analogy for how we manage ourselves and our time. You'll find an illustration of the four quadrants on the cassette package. Here again is Stephen Covey. I think one of the most helpful things is to have some kind of an organizing tool that constantly pushes you up against the roles that you have identified in your mission statement and then the goals that you want to achieve under each of those roles within the guidelines of the principles that you've identified, which means long-term planning, intermediate planning, short-term planning. I do not believe in planning less than one week. I think people that are in the day-to-day -day planning are just prioritizing crises and they'll find themselves buried in the thick of thin things and managing their life by crises. So I think the shortest unit of planning should be a week. That doesn't mean we don't adapt on a daily basis because we can't anticipate everything in a week. Things come up. We have to adapt to be flexible. 
But if you think in terms of a full week and each of the significant roles of your life and the goals you want to accomplish that week within the larger long-term goal context, I honestly think that is an extremely powerful tool to help you get disciplined. And people that do this continually tell us their lives become balanced. They are amazed that they ever lived in the thick of thin things before. So it takes discipline to do this, but it also takes the internalization of your mission statement so you have a clear definition of what truly is important. And you need to say no. People should practice saying no. Because every time they say yes to something that is not important, they're saying no to something that is more important. If you are saying no to people, you may be taking a withdrawal from the emotional bank account with those people. So you may have to spend some time educating them as to what you're doing and why you're doing it to show that you will actually help them more and contribute more to them. I remember one executive who said he was very criticized by his people when he started going into Quadrant 2. But when they started to discover the fruits that came from it, every time they saw him, they basically said, get back to Quadrant 2. That's where you're really productive. They didn't want to have to deal with the secretary or the assistant. But eventually, the secretary and the assistant became more competent in doing what they do, more than he did. But it took a little period of time, and it takes some courage, because most of the world is in quadrant one thinking, crisis management. And uh, you're swimming upstream a little, but that's the reason why you're not an animal. You have those four unique human endowments. You can do it. I also think that the key to moving the fulcrum over is to empower other people to learn how to delegate. And that's habits four, five, and six with regard to a particular job, which perhaps is the ability to delegate, to really empower people to become independent of you so that they can do their work. And through that kind of complementary team that you've created, much more gets accomplished at the other end. One of the main reasons why people do not delegate does involve the risk of a process of letting other people make mistakes on your own time, money, and good name. And that's a tough one. So you have to decide what are the levels of empowerment you want to have for other people. In some areas, you may say to them, wait till told. In another area, you might say, well, ask. In another area, you might say, bring your best recommendations. And then a higher level of empowerment would be to say to them, listen, use your own good judgment but tell me what you did. A higher level of empowerment would be to say to them, just use your own good judgment and report routinely. And then the last one would be, use your own good judgment and don't report at all. Now, how you train people through that process in moving up that level of initiative scale or that level of empowerment scale takes your judgment but don't betray the fact that you need to get them involved in a process. It does take a little risk, and you have to use judgment on your own. But also, when you teach them, teach them what judgment is made up of. Teach them every time you give a practice. Teach, now, what are the principles of all which is based? Take a little extra time. The time you take initially will pay huge dividends in the long run. Give a man a fish, the saying goes, and you feed him for a day. Teach him how to fish and you feed him for a lifetime. So the concept of helping people grow personally in their character, getting involved in their professional development toward their competency, will little by little improve their judgment, and your confidence in their judgment will go up. Now, I know there are some situations where you're under such terrific time pressure, you cannot 
trust their judgment right now. To me, that's all right. But what about the next one that comes up in two weeks? Do you want to help them prepared so that they can use their own judgment to handle that? If so, you've got to get invested in them. That takes a little more time. I know it does. But the time it saves downstream is like tenfold. You want to move the fulcrum over. You want to move the leverage over in your life so that you don't have to pick up the pieces for other people and so that they do completed staff work. They prepared the material for your signature. They're not just kind of reading your mind all the time. They are an extremely important member of this family or of this team. It's kind of like uh, bailing water out of a sinking ship. If they take the time to repair the hole at the bottom, then the ship will sink. And if they don't keep bailing, it will sink. So they're in such a plight, they just don't have time to do this preventative work at all. See, I dispute that. I believe that that's maybe the case with 80, maybe 90 percent. But I believe there's a little time, maybe 10 percent, if you're draining the swamp and you're fighting off those alligators that are just chomping at your feet, between hitting those alligators, just put that shovel in and take one piece of mud and throw it to the side. Eventually, you will drain the swamp. Now, this is not a quick-fix approach. People who have these long-established habits are not going to overcome this overnight. It's going to take some time. But if they can just do it, you know, like one degree, an inch at a time. By the yard, it's hard. By the inch, it's a sense. <laughs> but you have to have that commitment to go all the way with it. Otherwise, you don't build your emotional bank account with yourself. And if you don't have high trust in your own ability to make and keep promises and to accomplish things because you're buried by these crises that are breaking in on you every moment, you'll find that your ability to build emotional bank accounts with others will also be overdrawn and be very difficult because you'll be neglecting. And then that will add to more of the crises that you're in. It's the chicken and egg situation to some degree, but someone has to take the initiative to step in and say, wait a minute, I am not a product of limited time. You don't manage time, you manage self. I am a product of my responses to this circumstance. Therefore, I'm going to spend some time in prevention, some time in seizing opportunities, some time in relationship building, some time in planning and careful organizing to accomplish that plan. Now, maybe that's only 10%, then the next week, 15, then 20. Ultimately, I think that people should spend like a third of their life in quadrant two. And for top executives who are providing leadership to entire organizations should be 50, 60, 70 percent of their time in quadrant two. One top executive once tried to move toward quadrant two and he said, I went through terrific withdrawal pains. I was literally addicted to it. All I had to do in that quadrant one was react to what was happening to me. So he was going through the withdrawal pains of also developing a new habit to be truly proactive. In fact, all seven habits, all seven are in quadrant two. Think about it. Habit one. Quadrant one and three acts on you. Quadrant two, you have to act on it. So that's proactive to start with. Habit two. How many people seriously take the time to develop mission statements, both vision and principles, and to get them deeply internalized? Very few people do that. Seriously. Highly effective people do that. They may not have even done it explicitly, but they've done it in their heart and in their mind in a number of ways. That's what makes them effective. Habit three is where we teach this whole idea. Put first things first. So already habit three is in the essence of quadrant two. Habits four, five, and six has to do with the building of creative, communicative, synergistic relationships. 
So obviously those become quadrant two activities. And habit seven, sharpening the saw, that's not urgent. That's why a lot of people don't do it. To take the time to do it is a quadrant two activity. So you can see literally all seven habits. In fact, if someone were to say to me, if I were to just adopt one activity, what would it be? I'd say, increase the time in quadrant two. You know why? You'll do almost all of the seven habits. And those habits are basic principles going to operate regardless. I would say just increase it. If it's only 10%, get it to 15. If it's 2%, get it to 4. Make some improvement. Then when they begin to see the pragmatic fruits, it will become the most convincing evidence that they need to stay with it. I know it's totally changed my life. Absolutely. I just cannot spend time in things that other people can do, that other people can do better than me, and in things that will not really make a difference. You almost have to be converted through your own experience to the power of it. It keeps your life balanced. Otherwise, uh, most time management deals with prioritization. But the concept of balance is a whole different dimension. That's why I really believe that the Quadrant Two way of thinking and doing is the fourth generation in the field of time management. As Stephen has illustrated, one result of developing and living by a mission statement is empowerment. This is a term that is used in many contexts, but what exactly is empowerment? Stephen now uses an example from his own life to get at the essence of the meaning of this word. He learned from this experience that empowerment is built on trust. If you don't trust people, if they're not trustworthy, and if you yourself are not trustworthy, then empowerment is just artificial, it's a shadow, it's language, it's platitudes, but there's no real substance to it. What you do is you control people, you don't empower them. Well, I was kind of raised to some degree in this, what I call, kind control approach. It's kind of a benevolent autocracy. It's kind, you're good to people, see? I was raised somewhat in that, in my business career and so forth, and all of a sudden, I came into a situation where I had a new boss. He didn't see the world through that paradigm at all. He saw the world through an empowerment paradigm. And my first experiences with him just kind of disarmed me utterly, even though initially I was a little wondering and questioning, is there sincerity behind this? But basically, he called me on the phone one day. Now, he's my boss, and I had a large operation with many, many managers reporting to me and thousands of people involved. And my first contact with him over the phone, basically he said, Stephen, I see my role to be a source of help to you. And so I'd like you to consider me this way and let me know what I could do to help you. I thought to myself, well, that's one of the nicest, most soft, considered approaches I've ever heard, but basically he's just kind of building the relationship so that he can just come in and make sure that things are going right in my area of responsibility and, if they're not, to provide the necessary corrections. Because that was the way I would think. See, we judge others by their behavior, ourself by our intentions. So when I saw his behavior over the phone, I projected my motive or my intention on his behavior unaware of the paradigm out of which he was operating. And he said to me, I really mean it, Stephen. It maybe he's not appropriate to visit you. You may have a number of things going there, and it wouldn't be the best time to try to give you help. You decide. 
And I thought, I think he does mean it. I mean, I can kind of call the shots here. He's not just my hovering supervisor checking up on me. He really wants to be my source of help. I started to believe that. I wasn't that certain, but I just began. And then he said, maybe I could tell you a little about myself and what my experience has been in, and that might give you an idea of how I could be a resource to you. Well, he'd had something like 25 years more experience than I had, rich resource base, extremely wise. But anyway, I said to him, well, perhaps now isn't the time to visit. So we put it off. And then when he did come to visit, which was about three months later, he took the same attitude. I met him at the airport. How can I help you? I'm here to help you. The servant leader concept. And I thought, well, that's awfully nice. But what basically do you want to look into? He said, I'm here to help, whatever you would like. So I took him to a particular meeting, and I said to him, it would help if you were to reinforce this point that I'm trying to get across. So he did it. And then I would give him another instruction, and he would do it. And then he would turn to me and say, is there anything else? Well, I started feeling I'm the one that's responsible. He's the one that's my helper. So I started getting very open to him. And as I would leave one meeting... After handling some problems in the way I'd traditionally handled it, I turned to him and said, what do you think? The way I handled that, uh, is that congruent with your experience? And he would answer this way. Well, Stephen, you might consider what they're doing over here, or you might consider this. He didn't tell me one thing. He basically affirmed my responsibility and my power to make the decisions. But he gave illustrations of examples of things I might consider. So what happened is my conscience became the dominant force in this relationship, not him. And he left me and he went to do other things. He had other areas of responsibility. But my conscience never did. It was always with me. Boy, did I feel responsible. So I started to plumb him for his wisdom and his experience. And he came forth in abundance. But he never told me what to do. He always told me, you might consider this, you might consider this. Well, that enthroned my conscience in a way I had not experienced before. Shortly after that, I went to work with another supervisor who was a very fine person as well, but very controlling, very dictatorial even. And I eventually found how easy that work was. All I had to do was do what he told me to do. I never had to accomplish desired results toward any other areas. So if you'd tell me something, I'd say, you bet, I'll be happy to. And then I'd go and do my thing, find my satisfaction somewhere else. I tried to do the best I could, but there was no creative opportunity, no learning opportunity, and I felt totally disempowered, so I found most of my satisfactions off the job, not on the job. And all the people around this person did the same thing. They accommodated his style. One man was very proactive. He learned how to compensate for this leader's weaknesses and where the leader had that style he would study what he needed to do and gradually anticipate the president's needs fulfill those needs until his circle of influence got larger and larger he eventually ended up running the operation with this leader and they became a powerful complementary team so in other words even though his boss was not empowering the recipient of the delegation was so proactive and so inwardly secure that he took the initiative to create the realm of empowerment for himself. I hadn't done that, see. 
when I was working with the president, but this man did. And it was a powerful model to me. It's these kinds of experiences that help me contrast control and empowerment and really help lead to the development of these seven habits, that the key is an internal self-control, a self-empowering process, which leads eventually to the natural emergent empowerment of other people. So I see the abundance mentality as a kind of emergent endowment that comes from the exercise of those four unique human endowments, self-awareness, imagination, conscience, and willpower. And that habit five is a kind of courage balanced with consideration endowment. I think that the full application of habit five is necessary, but it's the sequence of seeking first to understand, it's like diagnosing a person's eyes, then you build the prescription on the diagnosis. People do not practice the full habit. The full habit says, seek first to understand, then to be understood. So they start empathizing, they start listening, they show consideration, and eventually they get sucked in to the other person's point of view and they become sympathetic instead of empathetic, and they abandon their own. Or they're not influenced at all in the process, but they kind of just capitulate because they say, well, you know, we've got to keep peace around here. And it's that sequence that becomes the real key. But you can't abandon the last half of that or else you'll get sucked into lose-win performance agreements. You also have to make it very explicit to the person that you're empathizing with what you're doing. Tell them, you're empathizing. I'm not taking any position at all. I'm just trying to understand how you see it, how you feel about it. And then I want to restate your position to your satisfaction. And then I would like the opportunity to say how I see it and how I feel about it. Now, what you're saying and sharing with me will probably powerfully influence that, and I'll indicate that as well. Then the two of us can interact together until we can find some solution that we really feel superbly good about. That's synergy, see? So problem solving is habit six. But the communication process of habit five is the foundation of that and the spirit and motive of habit four. And I can't tell you how important the motive of habit four is. I mean, you think for yourself, when you're convinced you're right, do you really want other people's opinions? So usually we don't. When we're convinced we want, we want submission. We want obedience to our opinions. We want our boss to ask our opinion. We want our subordinates to go along like good soldiers. So you have to really analyze the situation and ask, wait a minute, here's another person involved. This person sees it differently. How important is that person to me? What is truly important about the long-term situation here? I do want their opinion. It's hard, though. You have to suck it up a little. Hunker down and make it happen. Go for a win-win performance agreement. I've been in many situations where I just hoped that what I thought was win would be win to them. And if it wasn't because I had not prepared myself as well inside, I tended to go for win-lose. Or if I didn't have any courage left, capitulated and went for lose-win. And habit six, to synergize, is the endowment of being creative. And when you're creative with another person, it's a form of cooperative creation. So these are emergent endowments that come because people have exercised the foundational generic endowments that are unique to our nature as human beings. We've reviewed six of the seven habits in action. Being proactive and responsible. Beginning with the end in mind. Putting first things first thinking win-win, 
seeking to understand, then be understood, learning to synergize. But once these habits are alive within us, it is the seventh habit, sharpening the saw, that will nurture and replenish them. What's the second law of thermodynamics? It's the word for disorder, entropy. In other words, everything tends to become disarrayed, disordered, chaotic. Always happens. That's why habit seven is so foundational. People continuously sharpen the saw. So you're always trying to get some kind of continuous improvement or renewal processes going at all four levels. And you have to absolutely maintain it. I got up this morning to swim. I didn't feel like it really, but I just know that it's probably worth more than the sleep. And then you have to kind of get your head together and to get a sense of what your day's about and what your mission is about, what you're about, see, and how you're going to go about it. What are the principles upon which you operate? That's a personal self-renewal. Every one of those habits represents a paradigm shift from traditional cultural wisdom. Habit one, the traditional is determinism. And therefore, you can say, I'm not responsible because of all those reasons out there, whether it's environment or your upbringing or whatever. That's traditional, see? What we're saying is, you are not an animal. You're not a product of your environment. Now, that, I know, is a staggering statement to make. You're not a product of your upbringing. You're a product of your choices to your upbringing. You're a product of your choices to your environment. You're even a product of your choices to your genetic makeup. Now, if you can emotionally accept that, how liberating, how freeing it is, but also how damning. <laughs> of course, you probably wouldn't emotionally accept it if it's damning, because it's so much easier to say I'm not responsible than to say I'm irresponsible. But if a person can emotionally say, I am today what I am because I so chose to be that, they can also say I choose otherwise. The power to make a choice. So that is a fundamental paradigm shift. Habit two, most people who are into goal selection have not carefully thought through the framework, the context within which to uh, set goals. They haven't thought through their mission statement before they even think of setting goals. See? Consequently, they are a little frustrated sometimes because I, I want to get on with it and to get into this deep interior work. See, that is a paradigm shift with traditional cultural practice and wisdom. Habit three is the key to turning a mission statement into a constitution. A constitution means the supreme law of the land, so that if someone's style is inconsistent with the mission statement, what rules? The mission statement. But what if the person says, no, I rule? Now what's the constitution? The person, see? Then it's not based on principles. Constitution is based on principles. It is the supreme law. If you have your mission statement based on principles, and then you live by it, and I don't know anyone that lives by it perfectly, but if they're working at it, if they're striving to work at it, it becomes a constitution. Now, what does that mean to you personally? If you live by your value system, your honor will become greater than your moods. You have a constitution. You're principle-centered. That is a paradigm shift. Habit four obviously is a paradigm shift, to think win-win. In fact, on my weekly organizer, where it says sharp on the saw, and down there where it says social-emotional, all I do is write down four, five, and six. Because that's what sharpening the saw is. I have to, every time I go into a new situation, 
to avoid entropy, to avoid getting disarrayed, disordered, and out of sync, I immediately have to go to myself and say, all right now, remember, think win-win. Then seek first to understand before seeking to be understood. And then through that process of interaction, let the insights and learnings which come help create new options, new alternatives, this synergistic creative result. And if you get yourself psyched, now you see you're going into a meeting, instead of going into the meeting with the end in mind that you're going to have your way, you go into the meeting with the end in mind you're principle-centered. And you do not know what's going to come out of it, except you know it's going to be a lot better than anything you brought to that meeting and anything they brought to the meeting. Because the dynamism of the interaction is where the real power is. That's the synergy. It's exciting. It gives insight. People learn from it. And sometimes it's almost near chaos. In fact, I tend to believe that almost all significant things happen almost near chaos. I bet you've learned the same thing. There's a certain magic that happens, a certain kind of chemistry. That's habit six. That's synergy, see? All three of those habits, four, five, and six, are paradigm shifts with traditional cultural practice and wisdom, particularly six, because six, the traditional concept is give a little, take a little, compromise. And seven, I suggest, therefore, the continuous improvement habit, the self-renewal habit, the sharpening the saw habit is the only way I know to keep from suffering the effects of the second law of thermodynamics. Stephen has indicated several direct ways in this program to incorporate the seven habits, to make them an integral part of your life, of your person. In this final section, he offers some specific action steps to get the process of living the seven habits underway. First of all, I'd like to give a caution. Remember, you don't want to get yourself psyched from the wrong source. That is just from your public life. I would go into your secret life. I really encourage you to do that. I know many people will not. But those who do, if they'll learn to be still and to meditate, and if they can live with some silence and they honestly begin to work with their mission statement, with their unique human endowments, they'll find something beginning to happen inside themselves. Their conscience will speak to them. They can begin to imagine and to think of a commitment they want to make, which they will keep no matter what their moods are. Too many people that get temporarily psyched will make a commitment, and then when the circumstance change or their mood changes, they break the commitment. The pattern of making and breaking New Year's resolutions is perhaps one of the most common illustrations of this. The key is not to get your energy from the public or even your private life, but get your energy from your secret life, from your conscience, from your independent will, from your self-awareness. Start small. Better to have very small successes until gradually, little by little, you can make larger commitments, larger promises. Then eventually, your own sense of personal honor will indeed be greater than your moods and more powerful than the environmental forces that surround you. Now, these are some of the things I would consider doing in terms of certain commitments or goals that you want to think about in your heart of hearts.
One, am I prepared to sharpen the saw? Am I prepared to spend some time every day in self-renewal? That to me has so many good things that come from it. You might even start with a half an hour. Even if it's just 10 minutes exercise and 20 minutes in spiritual reviewing your mission statement or recommitting yourself to your value system and your mental activity of reading a book for a period of time. Just a half an hour. Eventually, I think you'll find that will go into a full hour and more. It'll come to have such meaning to you. But that one commitment, consistently followed through on, will have so many other benefits that will flow from it. Otherwise, you'll fall into entropy. And that is the natural tendency of all things. So to be committed to continuous jump-starting your own mind and spirit and body on a consistent basis, to me, is like a first early commitment. Most everyone can do that. I'd say another important thing is to think about all those key relationships that need to have a deposit in them. I want to make sure that I get together with my daughter Jenny. I want to make sure that I go to my son Joshua's soccer game. I want to make sure that I communicate with my married son Sean. I want to make sure that I keep in touch. I want to make sure that I nurture those people that are nearest and dearest to me. Success at home precedes all other success. Then I would say a third thing to think about would be to decide to spend more time in Quadrant 2 to empower more other people, to decide what truly is important, and to work on that and to say no to the other. That takes some courage. But someone has to do this preventative work, or else we'll all spend our time treating the symptoms of the deeper problems. And I feel that all of us are called to provide that kind of leadership inside our lives, inside our family lives, inside our organizations, so that we can keep the tendencies of earlier generations from going into the next generation. We become change catalysts. Our private life should come out of our secret life, out of those commitments we make deep within our heart. And to make sure that we don't get overcommitted, because we're going to end up violating those and then getting discouraged and guilt trip your life. Be patient. Be kind to yourself. Start small. Go slow. It was interesting to see another great movie, The Dead Poet Society, how this new literature teacher attempted to help his students become empowered. He took them through some very fascinating creative experiences. The school itself was a very prestigious prep school, which was deep not into empowerment, but deep into control and training. Its paradigm was basically, we have it, you kids don't have it, you've come to us to get it, congratulations, your parents are smart in bringing to us we have the prestige. If you obey the rules, you too will get it. You'll become one of us. By the way, they said, we have a new teacher here. His paradigm was this. We don't have it. You think we have it. We don't. You don't realize you have it. You do. It's my job to help you realize you have it. So then he'd give them various experiences. At one point, he actually had them tear up part of the textbook. He wanted to say to them, you too can write a verse in poetry. You too can make something happen. But one of the scenes I like is just a short segment where he has the students walk into the room the first day of his class. He walks through the room. They're all in their structured, controlled way, waiting for the instructions, the training to put stuff into them. 
and he's into true education to get stuff to come out of them. He takes them out into the hall, shows them pictures of students who, as he puts, are now fertilizing daffodils. Then he has them look at that wall, and he says, get up close, and you can hear them bequeath their legacy to you. Carpe diem. Carpe diem. Seize the day. Seize the moment. Make it happen. The power lies in your power to choose what your life is about. So he takes them into their secret life, and for a few seconds you can feel the stillness, and it bequeaths its energy into them, and it begins a process. This process continues, but unfortunately, because principle-centered leadership was not at the core of the entire institution, when a tragedy occurred, the whole culture essentially turned on him and scapegoated against him as the cause of the tragedy because its fundamental paradigm needed to remain intact. And that's why it's important that principle-centered leadership goes out into the way the organization does its structuring and its systems so that those two are in harmony with the principles contained in the seven habits. The principles of win-win, of empathic communication, and synergistic problem-solving. The principles of the organization or the family taking responsibility to decide what it's about and then to organize itself around those priorities. I encourage getting back into the Seven Habits book and studying it some more. I encourage sharing it with other people, teaching it to your loved ones, teaching it to your work associates. I encourage the awareness that these Seven Habits represent an ecosystem, that they are all interrelated and at higher and higher levels their content changes and their character remains the same. I encourage being patient and kind to oneself in this process, but realizing understanding this intellectually does not make it happen. I can't do 20 push-ups because I understand the technique of how to do it. I have to pay the price. We have the power inside ourselves to do it. I agree with the great French philosopher who said, we are not human beings having a spiritual experience. We are spiritual beings having a human experience. You've been listening to Living the Seven Habits, Applications and Insights with Dr. Stephen R. Covey. This program was adapted by Jesse Boggs with digital editing and mastering by Colin Sean Mahoney of Zacuto Audio. I'm Kevin Moore. The associate producer was Sloan Seaman. Living the Seven Habits was produced by Linda Wallman. This has been a presentation of Simon & Schuster Audio, 